This is episode 42 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, this is Eric Severson, adventurer, educator, and creator of Innovative Educational Services. If you want to live life passionately, if you want to tackle life with enthusiasm, then stop what you're doing right now and start listening to Next Year Now podcast with my amazing friend, Tom Hefner. You can look at the organization, SAS Institute, Patagonia, Collective Health. The irony is, is that the companies that actually understand that everything they do is done through and with their people and treat their people accordingly are much more profitable and much more successful. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today, you and I have a really great opportunity to learn from one of the world's experts on human resource management and organizational behavior, and that's Jeffrey Pfeffer. Jeffrey is a best-selling author and business professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he's stopping by to chat with us about his latest book, Dying for a Paycheck. Almost all of us work or have worked at some point in our life, so you really don't want to miss this chat. In our conversation, I'll be asking Jeffrey about how and why the modern workplace is killing us, why most people don't just leave their jobs in the unhealthy work environments, how we can cultivate a healthy workplace for ourselves and our colleagues, book recommendations on power to help us understand how and why power is used in the workplace and beyond, and so much more. Before I introduce Jeffrey, I want to take a moment to ask you for a favor. I would love it if you'd be willing to nominate the Next Year Now podcast and this year's podcast awards. If you're willing, just follow these easy instructions. Simply navigate to podcastawards.com slash app slash signup. Afterward, verify your email address. You'll receive an email from Podcast Awards with a six-digit code that needs to be entered on their site. Enter the code and click submit. Now you're ready to nominate shows. I'm looking for a nomination in the business category. Just click the drop-down menu associated with business and scroll alphabetically until you find the Next Year Now podcast in the list. All right, why am I asking you for this? This determines whether or not the Next Year Now podcast will make the list of 10 nominees, and that can have a huge impact on the show and, more importantly, on the type of guests that we can book. All right, onward and upward. Time to introduce our guest today. Jeffrey Pfeffer is an American business researcher and the Thomas D. Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Graduate School of Business, Stanford University. And he's considered one of today's most influential management thinkers. Pfeffer strives to educate and inspire leaders to seek power through evidence-based management, the knowing-doing gap, high-performance culture, and unconventional wisdom. Pfeffer has given talks in 39 countries around the world, and he's taught management seminars for numerous companies and associations in the United States. Companies like Sutter Health, the Mayo Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, John Hancock, Hewlett Packard, and the online publishers association now called Digital Content Next. Jeffrey has won numerous awards for his articles and books. He was elected 
a fellow of the Academy of Management more than 25 years ago, was a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Sciences, and won the Richard D. Irwin Award for Scholarly Contributions to Management. And finally, he's currently ranked number 17 in Thinker's 50 list of top management thinkers. Jeffrey, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to the show, my friend. Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for your interest. Oh, this is going to be a great conversation. And Jeffrey, when I first read the title of your book, Dying for a Paycheck, I thought about my brother who used to work construction and he had to balance himself, no joke, four stories high on a two inch wide plank of wood. It was dangerous work. I'm sure for him it was, you know, scary work, but it was good money and it was what helped put him through college. And that definitely seemed like dying for a paycheck. No way you'd get me to do that. Fast forward to today. And the modern work environment, what and how is this workplace killing us? Well, it's interesting you begin with a construction example because, <laughs> ironically, uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration and comparable agencies around the world have done a fabulously fantastic job of cleaning up what I would call the physical threats of work. So in the olden days, people would lose hands and arms and their lives and saws mm-hmm. and people would fall off construction sites and people would have chemical spills and all this other stuff. And that, for the most part, has been taken care of by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And if you look at their reported figures, which is the, which is the stuff that they report on, which is of course the uh, the, the kind of physical stuff that you're talking about mm-hmm. with respect to your your relative. That's gone down dramatically, even over the last ten or fifteen years, let alone compared to a hundred years ago. What hasn't gone down, and what in fact is getting worse all the time, is other sources of workplace problems that create enormous health and mortality effects, including workplace stress. We know stress adversely affects the immune system. We know that the workplace is actually one of the largest sources of stress, so it should not surprise anybody to, to, to see that the workplace is a health hazard. Are, are there specific management practices or other things that are driving some of the, the workplace stress that we, uh, that we all probably feel? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And most of these workplace practices have gotten, of course, worse over time. So one source of stress is economic insecurity, layoffs, not knowing your shifts, not knowing how much money you're going to make from from week to week. And that, of course, has gotten worse. Layoffs are more common than they used to be 40 or 50 years ago. They are not necessarily just related anymore to economic stringency. People lay off just because it's the thing to do. The scheduling software is, of course, imposed all kinds of stresses for not knowing what your schedule is going to be from one minute to the next. That's number one. Number two, um, believe it or not, even independent of all this hullabaloo over Obamacare, uh, the percentage of companies offering health insurance and the percentage of people covered by company-offered health insurance has gone down. Not having health insurance means you don't have access to health care, which is not only stressful, but also directly affects one's health. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been increasing levels of micromanagement through the wonderful advent of computer monitoring of everything you do and every minute and every second we know where you are and uh, and uh, and this and this absence of job
job control has been known for four decades uh, to be experienced as stressful. Work-family conflict has gotten worse. And work hours, particularly in the United States, have gotten longer as people are working longer and longer. And even when they supposedly leave work, they haven't because they're checking their emails and their bosses calling them or emailing them at all hours of the day and night and even on vacation. So all of this stuff, I mean, the work-family conflict, absence of job control, the economic insecurity and job loss, the issues around accessing health care, the sense of a, a loss of fairness and justice, uh, which often has also uh, occurred in workplaces. All of this is experienced as stressful, and all of this is, is made um, workplaces hazardous to our health. I just saw. Uh, I just saw. A, I, I wonder if you, what you would think of this article, and, and it came out from Stanford University, where you're at, where um, a professor there said, um, basically trying to flip the paradigm, the mindset of uh, present day workplace, which is basically. And I know I'm, I'm reading from the tagline here, but that we should all have a part time job until I think we're the age of forty, and then at uh, some point, uh, you know, it, I forget when it was. We should we should retire well before you know the the, the standard thing, and it was interesting because I'm. Sure, you know, on the the, the, the headline was a kind of a catchy headline grabbing, you know, title. But I, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think you people ought to retire in their 20s and 30s and work when you get older. But I certainly don't think you ought to retire when you get older. When you get older, life fills you with all kinds of aches and pains and stresses, and your <laughs> friends begin to die. So you need something to take your mind off your troubles. So I think you ought to retire young and work when you're old. One of the things that I remembered from when I first started working at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, we talked about micromanagement and it used to drive me crazy. It was my first, you know, my first real job. I had internships and things like that and I lived really far away. My wife and I, um, we were actually staying with my parents at the time and because of the, the nature of the commute, it was, you know, very, very volatile and at times it would take an hour. Sometimes it would take 30 minutes. Sometimes it would take an hour and a half. And our uh, our group administrator uh, would would send an email to our my my supervisor if I got in at eight thirty one I was supposed to be there at eight thirty so you talk about micromanaging if I got there at eight thirty one I got an email from my supervisor why are you late Tom why are you late <laughs> yeah well that's of course. Uh, that you've illustrated, I mean, you know, and the problem is, is that your situation is not untypical. People say, well, you know, we, I enjoy my work and I enjoy working hard, and that is probably correct. But if you enjoy your work and you enjoy working hard, you enjoy doing your work, but you have probably control over what you do and when you do it. Mm-hmm. Nobody enjoys, or almost nobody enjoys, being told what to do, when to do it, where to do it, etc. So it's one thing to give you an assignment that says, you know, Tom, you've got this project that needs to get done by such and such a date. Now, you will figure out sometime between today and then how to do it, when to do it, how to do it in the best way to produce the best results. That's great. If I tell you, you know, Tom, you know, I need this by, you know, 5 o'clock, and no, now I need it by 4 o'clock, and no, Tom, uh, which actually happened to a person I know and I interviewed for the book, you know, it's Thursday, um, you you have plans for Saturday night. You're five or six months pregnant. Tough. On Saturday night, you're going to be on United Airlines flight to Paris, France, to arrive in Paris on Sunday uh, to do a meeting on Monday. Uh, not is there other ways to accomplish what you need to accomplish <laughs> yeah. in your role as marketing? It is it is do this. And and people, you know, and particularly intelligent professional employees don't find this very. They they find it demeaning, which it is, and uh, and they find it uh, 
stressful, which of course it is, yeah. because you have no control over your life. I mean, you, you're basically what you do, how you do it, and when you do it has become subject to the whims and dictates of your boss. Well, Jeffrey, my wife's originally from Europe, uh, and her whole family still lives there. One of the things that I think they find most amazing and maybe a little bit depressing is how much my wife and I work. It just doesn't compute for them. It doesn't make sense that we spend so much time working, you know, talking about work, thinking about work, talking to our friends about work, and on and on. And while we love what we do, I'm sure there are some negative consequences on our health, both now and down the road. Speaking more broadly, what are the short and long-term health effects of working so much for all of us? Oh, there's been tons of studies of the effect of work hours on health. Uh, there was a study done in California which shows that the more your work hours, and it goes up virtually monotonically, um, the higher your risk of having uh, elevated high blood pressure. The work hours, of course, uh, contributes to work-family conflict. And the adverse effect of work hours on mortality has been studied in a variety of different countries, even outside of the U.S. and even in Europe. So work hours is, um, is definitely harmful to health. Here's what's ironic. You can go look at The Economist magazine, and you can go look at um, other studies that have been done. But The Economist magazine has this lovely chart. On the <laughs> horizontal axis is countries arrayed by the uh, number of hours, uh, average hours of work. And on the vertical axis productivity. And as you might imagine, it is <laughs> linearly down. So it turns out the, the more, the, the, and this is true for country, it's just true at the country level of analysis. There have been studies done inside the United States at the industry level of, of analysis, cross-sectionally and longitudinally. As work hours go up, per hour productivity goes down. So the idea that we are gaining anything by all these goofy work hours is just wrong. So people, people are working hard for nothing. Well, actually, that isn't true. They're working hard because it gives them a sense of how important they are, and they are, you know, demonstrating their commitment to the organization, etc. But it's not really uh, pro providing much economic benefit. Well, in some sense, I think that you know that how how Americans find their their value and purpose is very much tied up in their work. And I I know when I talk to my family members over in Europe, or even uh, when I've done worked on programs in Australia and things like that, they're much more productive in the time that they have, in the sense that they're not doing money money morning uh, football reviews they're not doing the 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 march madness brackets i mean they're, when they're there they're doing their work and they're they're on point and i find that in the u.s there's much more time for leisure and work get mixed together a little bit more and also i mean so when um so in 1998, which is now 20 years ago, I did a case on SAS Institute, the largest privately owned software company in the world. And of course, SAS is famous for the 35-hour work week. And I said to Jim Goodnight, their co-founder and CEO, how could you have in the software industry people working only 35 hours? He said, go look at the typical software company. He said, they're not working 35 hours. He said, they're spending enormous amounts of time in wasted meetings, mm -hmm. in being on all these, you know, all these micromanaged activities. Activities. You know, you're meeting with your boss to be told what to do. You're meeting with this committee to this. You're doing this. You're doing. So he said half the time we spend at work, not just with the March Madness and all this other stuff. He said it's just wasted effort. He said, you know, he said, if I tell people you've got to get your work done and you ought to have employees who are able to get their work done in 35 hours, they look at that 
as a precious resource, the time, and they try to make sure that that time is used as, as effectively and productively as possible, not wasted in all of these, you know, coordinated meetings and, you know, budget reviews and all kinds of other stuff in which people are micromanaging turns out to absorb an enormous amount of time. Mm. In addition to stressing people out, it's just wasted time. Well, Jeffrey, if the current workplace, you know, it is so bad in terms of bad effects on our health, the micromanaging, the stress that's causing us and, and quite literally killing us uh, with these deleterious effects, why don't more people just leave their jobs and, and do something else? Um, I think, first of all, in order to leave your job, you have to have an option and money or something. I think that's number one. I think number two, we have come to normalize the unacceptable. So, you know, I had somebody say to me recently, you know, Jeffrey, what makes me think I can leave work at six o'clock when all my colleagues are there, you know, whatever. And so we have come to believe, you know, I mean, we we are human beings, are creatures of social influence. We know this, you know, if you want to stop smoking, you get rid of all your friends who are smokers. (laughs) If you want to stop drinking, you don't hang out with drunks. If you want to stop doing drugs, you don't hang out with drug addicts. We are creatures of the people with whom we are we are influenced by the people we hang out with. We know that. Our political attitudes are influenced by the people we hang out with. Everything is influenced by the people we hang out with. If you hang out with a bunch of people who are working all the time, you're going to be tending to work all the time, and so you won't think it's so weird. Mm. It, it requires really a little perspective to step back and say, uh, you know, this is, this is really harmful, and I really don't want to do this anymore. So one of the reasons why I think people stay is – that everybody else, all our friends are doing it. I got to do it too. I think the other reason why people stay is companies have really mastered the art of of, of knowing exactly what ego button to push. So I have I told a story in dying for a paycheck. Guy I know used to work at GE. He sent me a guy a picture. I should have actually put pictures in the book Dying for a Paycheck. It's wonderful. He said if you use a picture, pixelate my face. You can caption the picture of my body on GE. It was about seventy pounds heavier than he is today. So he would go in to quit. He said, I can't stand this anymore. He's flying a quarter of a million miles a year and never seeing his kids. Just, it was horrible. Goes in to quit. Boss looks at him and says, what's wrong with you? Aren't you good enough to be a GE leader? <laughs> if you were good enough to be a GE leader, you'd figure it out. Aren't you good enough? Same thing Amazon, by the way, does quite explicitly. Aren't you good enough? You know, aren't you good enough? Of course I'm good enough. I can do this. You know, we're going to power through. I can show. I can work harder. So part of this is kind of ego. I can, you know, if you're sending me emails at three in the morning, I can send you emails at four in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, that's exactly right. And so it, you get into this kind of, you know, and finally, I would point out that a friend of mine who, the person who I interviewed for the book, who worked at Salesforce said, you know, she said, she said, you know, she said, I'm, she went, by the way, she says, I went on antidepressants one week after I joined Salesforce, which is one of the interesting <laughs> indicators of life. You know, what percentage of your friends are taking drugs, which, by the <laughs> way, in the Silicon Valley is extremely high. Really? Is extre- oh, yes. Oh, yes. You can trace this. You can, you can trace unhealthy workplaces by prescription drug use. Also, by the way, non-prescription drug use, but, yeah. <laughs> but prescription, drugs, prescription drug use day is available. But anyway, so she goes to work. She's on antidepressant. She's doing what she can do. Why don't you quit? By the way, getting a job is a full-time job. I don't have the energy. I don't have the psychological and physical capacity. I am so emotionally and physically depleted, I can't 
do it. Mm-hmm. I can't go and find a job and hit the and hit the ball out of the park at the level uh, that I expect to. She's a Harvard Business School grad. I, I, I just not capacity to extricate yourself from the situation. You have to have enough emotional strength and physical resilience to do something which is difficult, which is in fact get a job. I'd also say I've talked with some of my friends and colleagues that have felt hindered or, or reticent to leave. And they always talk about the golden handcuffs, the golden handcuffs of working at Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And they do just enough with, you know, the retirement or your salary or other things to, to keep you in there, just enough to keep you in the fold. Yeah, that I don't see so much. <laughs> you must have a better deal than most of the people yeah, I Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I have a pretty good deal. Well, look, we've talked a lot about the negative side of the workplace. That is to say, what makes for a bad work environment? Let's flip that discussion around. What does an ideal or healthy workplace look like? Well, an ideal or healthy workplace, first of all, eliminates all the bad stuff we've talked about. You don't have the excessive hours. You give people capacity and opportunity to balance their work and their non-work obligations. Uh, You certainly don't micromanage them. You do something which we've talked about for 40 decades, not 40 decades, four decades, which is give them autonomy on the job. This issue of job control, I think, is really, really central. Um, We know that when when people feel that they have job autonomy, they're more motivated, uh, they're more engaged, um, and you've also eliminated the stress of all this micromanaging. You know, so you, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts is, you know, companies hire talented people who have, in many instances, other job experience. And then they say, thank you, you know, Tom, I'm glad we've hired you. You're wonderful. By the way, we've hired you on the basis of your knowledge and experience. Time, forget your damn knowledge and experience. I want to tell you what to do. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. I mean, you might as well hire idiots because if you're going to tell them what to do, it's just <laughs> nuts. So give people autonomy. Give people that, 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 that's number one. Number two, um, we know, again, because humans are social creatures, uh, the importance of social support. So, you know, let's have some social events organized around work. Let's have birthdays, recognition, and, and various kinds of celebrations. Let's, when people have tragedies occur in their lives, send a signal that says the organization and the people they work with really care. So I have a friend who runs a company called Jazz Pharmaceutical, and uh, a woman who worked in their Philadelphia office, her husband died suddenly and tragically. And, uh, you know, so he said, as the CEO, he said, number one, he said, take as much time as you need and we'll pay you. Number two, uh, friends, of course, offered babysitting support and they sent her food and all. And mm-hmm. the babysitting support and food is, you know, substantively important. But what really is the same, what really is important is a signal that says you are not going through this tragedy alone. Mm-hmm. You are surrounded by friends who care about you and for you and who will be here for, and will be there to help you in this difficult time. And that kind of emotional support, that kind of the sense of an organization as a community of people who care about each other, which, by the way, used to occur, doesn't occur so much anymore, both buffers stress and helps people deal more effectively with the stress they confront in their lives. And by the way, neither of these things cost any money. It doesn't it doesn't cost me money to say, Tom, you know, I need you to do this project and you know, I'm going to give you some discretion about how and when you do it. Yeah. It doesn't cost very much money to say, Tom, you know, we are here for you. And when you've had, you know, a birthday 
on the one hand or a tragedy on the other hand, uh, we're going to recognize this and be here and, and, and pull together for you. You mentioned that it used to be more prevalent uh, that we had this kind of community feel. It's I well, I guess it's ironic that and never before are we more connected, you know, via the internet and all these different electronic devices. And yet, what you're saying is that yeah, we're 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 not as connected as we were in the past as a as almost as a family or as a as a community. Why do you think that is? Well, there's been a bunch of research on how these electronic devices aren't, you know, are really more alienating than connecting. I mean, it's kind of a connection, but it's not real a connection. And the other thing is, is I think companies have really changed their view of, of the workforce. I mean, 40, 50 years ago in the 1950s, 1960s, if you talk to a CEO, and you don't have to believe me because there's lots of quotes from CEOs at that time, who would say they would say they would describe their job as basically balancing the interests of employees. Employees, customers, the owners, shareholders, and the community. And those days are gone. I mean, it's now money, 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 shareholders first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. That change has really, I think, weakened the bonds between people inside organizations. It's weakened the bonds between organizations and their people. It is a shame. Because it's costing a lot of money. And all, you know, you can look at the organizations, SAS Institute and Patagonia and Collective Health and Barry Waymiller, this interesting manufacturing company I write about in Dying for a Paycheck. I mean, you know, the irony is, is that the companies that actually understand that, uh, you know, that, uh, that everything they do is done through and with their people and treat their people accordingly are much more profitable and much more successful. And that's the ironic part is that it's a, it becomes a differentiator for them. So if these companies would just invest Huge. in their people emotionally uh, and otherwise and as a community, they would differentiate themselves because people would want to work for them. They would want to be a part of that. Well, one of the odd things, which, of course, won't surprise you, but, of course, there have been studies of this, is that, you know, stressed workers are more likely to quit and turnover is expensive. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't need studies of this, but there are, which I talk about in Dying for a Paycheck. Sick people, people who are either mentally or physically sick or both, aren't as productive. We are losing in productivity by making people ill at work. We are turning people over by stressing them out of work because they quit. And we are incurring as, as companies all kinds of costs for no benefit. It is it is just we've created in many organizations are created truly lose-lose situation. Jeffrey, before I move on to the last part of the show, is there anything else from the book that I haven't asked you about? And I understand that we probably have a longer conversation to cover everything, but but that you think is, hey, this is important and we should all know this. No, I think the only thing I would point out to make sure that everybody understands is that according to the data that I and some colleagues developed and has published in a refereed journal, uh, the workplace is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. Worse than Alzheimer's, worse than kidney disease. And the difference is if I told you that there were things that you could do relatively easily that would cure Alzheimer's and kidney disease, we'd do it in a minute. Somebody mm-hmm. could be getting the Nobel Prize for medicine. We're, we're killing people at work. And by the way, it is relatively easy to stop doing it. And we could we could therefore save a lot of lives. It's the fifth leading cause of death, about 120,000 people a year. Many of the workplace conditions we have talked about are as harmful to health as secondhand smoke. And the only other thing I would add is that, as we know, 
According to the World Economic Forum, chronic disease consumes three quarters of healthcare spending worldwide. It's, by the way, true in the U.S. as well. It's crazy. Healthcare, um, health, uh, the healthcare, uh, chronic disease consumes three quarters of all healthcare spending. Chronic disease comes from stress. Stress comes from work. So if we really are serious about fixing the healthcare cost crisis, not just in the U.S. but around the world, the workplace is one important place to begin. I couldn't put a better bow on that than myself. Look, it's time for my favorite part of the show. This is where we talk about one of the best habits we can adopt today, and that's the habit of reading. Jeffrey, I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years or books that have resonated with you to your core. What are the two or three books that stand out for you? Well, you know, I have I have odd taste, um, <laughs> and I <laughs> I have very odd taste, and I teach a class on power. Uh, so I, of course, am a huge fan of all of Robert Caro's books on Lyndon Johnson. I think Master of the Senate is fantastic. I think The Path to Power is amazing, and his book about Robert Moses, the power broker, is uh, is, is is just uh, is just absolutely stupendous. So I really enjoy well done, detailed kind of biographies, histories of 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 what is going on, really de- deeply reported, and where you where. It's written almost as a mystery, where you get the kind of the uh, all of that detail is, is is there, and you can really you can really see you know social life, and you can see how how people are people, and you know it's not that much different in one kind of group or, or one time or another, <laughs> one time or the other. That's exactly right. Well, final question: uh, What are you working on now that you're really excited about? Well, I'm continuing to do research on the effect of workplace and health. This afternoon, I'm going to be talking to a uh, woman from Stanford Medical School about what we might do, including gathering data on prescription drug use as a way of tracking (laughs) (laughs) the worst places uh, to work. But uh, one of the things I'm considering doing, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I I think I might, but you might. You can can give me some feedback if you think this is a good or bad idea. (laughs) Um, the, The working title of the book is The Leadership Secrets of Donald Trump. I think people have missed the fact that most of what he does, even though he doesn't do it in quite the way that many other people do, is number one typical for many CEOs. And I think people have missed the social psychology behind what and what he has done and what has made him effective. So I, I think people are horrified, you know, by his statements and the tweets and the this and the that. But but underneath all of this, there is a list of things which I've actually got outlined, uh, which by the way many leaders do. Um, he does them a little bit more, um, sometimes a little bit more outrageously. But there are a set of principles that I don't think people fully understand, which has made him effective. And because they don't understand that, they have underestimated him from the beginning, and they will underestimate him all until the end. I can't wait for that book to come out. Uh, when you write that book, come back on the show. I want to I want to hear about it because I'm incredibly interested in that because on the one hand, he has been effective in his life through his different business and media dealings. And I think the, the paradox is, right, is that he, he does and says these things that seem very outrageous to people's moral values, right? When you think about if somebody values respect or if somebody values honesty, he does them in such a way that it's just such a shock to those, those values that you, that you hold near and dear that they, they are missing those things because, I mean, I've had lots of conversations with friends and family uh, about his effectiveness, about his style. And oftentimes we end up having a discussion around those values versus the things that he's actually doing. 
Yep, and I think that's exactly the distinction. Well, very cool. Thank you very much, uh, Jeffrey. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm taking away a lot of concrete insights uh, that we can apply at my work, and uh, I know our listeners are too. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be with you, Tom. And I'm and I really hope that people will do something with this material in dying for a paycheck. I actually didn't write this just for myself. I mean, when you look at the health and well-being consequences, and you look at how many people who are suffering in this world, I mean, work ought to be a source of joy and fulfillment. It should not be a source of um, psychological and mental health uh, issues. I could not agree more. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take care. You can connect with Jeffrey Pfeffer online at jeffreypfeffer.com. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-P-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. And on Twitter using his Twitter handle at Jeffrey Pfeffer. All the links and resources Jeffrey and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 42. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.